understand that you can know beyond any shadow of doubt that you are a Christian. You don't have to hope so. You don't have to guess about it. You don't have to wonder. No, you can know. And God makes that known to us if you think about what He has done in grace to call us into salvation. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. Have you ever wrestled with the question of whether you're really saved? Is it God's work that saves me, or is there something else that I must do to gain salvation? If you're looking for answers to these questions, join us today as we listen to Pastor Trent teach what God's Word says about the doctrine of salvation. We've been in this series called Think, and we've looked at the doctrine of Revelation, and we looked at the doctrine of Christ. We looked at the greatest hits of Jesus Christ, the incarnation and the substitution and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, and, and uh, we've been thinking in high definition. We're going to get 10 more definitions here in the next week, so I'm just kind of giving you forewarning. Um, we want to think, and I trust that that is your heart as we go into uh, this morning, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to think about the doctrine of salvation. And I trust that you are thinking personally about your salvation. Now, when we come to this doctrine, there's two ways to ask the question, how is a person saved? Here's the first way that we might want to ask that question. It's the most typical way. As a matter of fact, it's a biblical way. It's in the Bible. Uh, but here's a question. What must I do to be saved? That's contained in a question that a Philippian jailer asked as things were crumbling around him and he recognized his desperate situation. He rushed to the Apostle Paul and he asked him that question in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. What must I do to be saved? Paul gave him a very simple answer. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And so that's one way to ask the question. It's a great way. That's kind of what we did last week. We looked at Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10 and we found out that if you you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Here's the question I want us to ask and answer this morning. What has God done to ensure that I will be saved? You see, throughout the pages of Scripture, when we see the subject of salvation addressed, we most often see it is God who is at work. He is the subject and we are the object of salvation. So we're going to ask this question and uh, we're going to think deeply here about it this morning and we're actually going to deal with some controversial issues. Everybody good for controversy in church? And that why you come to church? Controversy, right? So uh, we're going to deal with some of that this morning and we're going to have to think about some of these things. But I want to try to ask, I want to try to answer that question up front with just an overview scripture what has God done to ensure that I will be saved? And what I want you to notice in these scriptures that we're going to look at this morning is I want you to see the activity of God that was necessary in order for you and I to have any hope of salvation. I want you to look for the verbs that are attached to the person of God. Most everybody in here, when we share our testimony, at some point we would say, 
Jesus Christ has saved my soul. But what has he done to do that? Here's one verse of scripture that gives us an overview of that. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. It says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see anybody working in that verse? Who's working? God is at work. Look at the work that it took to save you. It took a lot of work on God's part. As a matter of fact, if you notice carefully, there is an order to how God has saved you. We see four different things in order that God has done to save us. The first thing that he's done, according to this verse, is he's predestined us. The second thing is what? He called. Third thing is what? He justified. Fourth thing is what? glorified. How many of you, when you look back at your testimony of coming into relationship with Christ, you can see that God was working. You can see there were different points at which he worked to call you and save you into salvation. You probably can. Um, How many of you, um, when you were a kid, you played dominoes? Anybody play dominoes? Um, When you played dominoes, how many of you, when you played dominoes, the dominoes looked like that? On a table, flat. How many of the rest of you were like me? When you played dominoes, they looked more like this. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I never really got dominoes. I, I, you know, some people play chess. I was still trying to figure out checkers. Um, so I, I'm not the brightest uh, when it comes to games, card games. I get smoked in card games. I'm just not good at those things. And so I, I, liked, I, I, I was just fascinated that you could set these dominoes up and that if you knocked one over, If you set them up correctly, it would ensure that the last one would fall, right? The same is true in salvation. There is an order to salvation. And God has ensured that if this domino is going to fall, glorified, that this domino falls, predestined. It works just like that. And it works every day time. There is an order to our salvation. In the Latin, the term is called, are you ready for this? You want to impress your friends? You want to sound like a Bible fathead? Say this, ordo salutis. Turn to your neighbor and say, did you know that there is an ordo salutis to your salvation? Ordo salutis. That means there is an order to salvation. We see that in one verse. We see four different steps in the order of salvation. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Did you know that theologians have actually found that there are ten steps? And we're going to look at all ten steps in the order of salvation over the next weeks as we think about the doctrine of salvation. So if you're ready to think, say go. Go. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. And let's see this first order of salvation, this first step is something that we call election. Actually, before we look at the scripture, let me give you all 10 points up front. You ready for this? All right. In order for me to be saved, 10 things had to happen. There had to be election, common grace, gospel call, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. Did you get all that? Now listen, you don't have to know all the definitions of all those terms. You don't even have to know that there is an order in order to be saved. As long as you repent and believe, as long as you 
confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead and that as Lord, you are coming under his lordship. You're surrendering to his lordship. You can be saved. If you are saved, we need to let our wonder explode under the weight of these definitions. And this ought to inspire worship and security. There are so many people who live doubting your salvation because you're just not quite sure if you're all the way in. If you understand what God has done to save you, you will have a security, you will have a confidence, you will have a boldness in your faith, you'll have a power over temptation to know that if God has done these things, then I am eternally secure in his care. So we're going to look at these 10 things. And the first of those is election. And we're going to define election this way. A sovereign act of God before the creation of the world in which he unconditionally chooses some to be saved. Now, the definition itself ought to just make your brain explode. And uh, this is one of the mysteries in Scripture that God has, before I ever existed, chosen to set His love and His affection and His grace on an unworthy, rebellious, hard-hearted sinner and choose to draw me, elect me into His family. Now, this is so hard to teach in modern Western America because we live in a democracy, or the vestiges of one anyway. And, um, and, and we, we want to feel like we get a vote, right? We want to feel like, hey, I, I, if there's an election, then I'm on the electing side, right? Not the one being elected. But in Scripture, what we find out is that there is only one vote. And God's vote is the only one that matters. And before the foundation of the world, the election was held, and those of us who by faith have come into relationship with Him are those that God calls the elect. Let's see that doctrine. It's taught all through the Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament is all the way through. It permeates everything in the Bible. But we see it very clearly unpacked for us in Ephesians chapter 1. So look at what it says here in verse 4. He chose us. Who's doing the action? Did you choose God? Or did God chose you? Uh, controversy, controversy, controversy. The answer is actually both, but the order is very important. And what we need to understand this morning is that before I chose God, He chose me. He chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Uh, any of you alive at that point? Uh, any of you done any good thing at that point? Any, anybody expressed any faith in Jesus before the foundation of the Lord? Anybody sinned before the foundation of the world? No. We weren't even around when this election took place. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in Love. You cannot disconnect the election of God from the love of God. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoptions. Everybody that's been adopted, raise your hand. 
Oh, it's a trick question. Some of you thought I meant biological. If you are saved, if you are in the family of God, it is not because you were a natural born child. You were a natural born sinner, a child of the devil. And God had to get you out of that family into his family. That's called adoption. That's like step seven. I don't know why I'm talking about that. We're talking about predestination. Verse five, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to whose purpose? Whose will? His will. What about my free will? We'll talk about that in a minute. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. Do you see how the election of God is to evoke thunderous worship and praise that somehow He chose me for reasons I will never understand solely by His grace with which He has blessed us. Why, God, have you blessed me? In the Beloved, notice the capital B, that is a title for Jesus. He's blessed me in Jesus. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of my good works. No, it's all a part of His grace. What we're talking about in these weeks are otherwise known as doctrines of grace. You and I have been made subjects of God's grace and he loved us and predestined us and chose us and redeemed us and adopted us, not for any goodness in me, but all because of the goodness in him. It goes on, with which he lavished. Here's another word. You like lavished? That's a great word. He lavished upon us, what? He lavished grace upon us, super abundant grace for my need in my sin. He lavished that upon us in all wisdom and insight. It wasn't just, he, it wasn't just a random moment. It was wisdom and insight that made him choose us far beyond anything we'll ever understand. In verse 9, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will. What was his will? To redeem me, to adopt me, to bring me into his family. According to his purpose, again, it is all about the purposes, the plans, and the will of God, which he set forth in Christ. I love the fact that it says he made known to us. Do you understand that no one is elected and, and adopted into the family of God without that being made known to them? God has done it long ago in eternity past, but in my little temporary time-space continuum... At some point, God makes that known to me. And every person that is in the family of God knows it. Everybody that's in right relationship with God knows it. This is a very important teaching, a very important doctrine in Scripture, which a lot of churches misunderstand. Do you understand that you can know beyond any shadow of doubt that you are a Christian? You don't have to hope so. You don't have to guess about it. You don't have to wonder. You don't like, I, I just, I, I'm pretty pleased. I got to make sure I pray one last prayer here before I die so I can go to heaven. No, you can know. And God makes that known to us if you think about what he has done in grace to call us into salvation. He goes on as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained, 
the inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Did you notice as we went through those six or seven verses, the only one that was working was God in drawing me and giving me his grace and setting his love upon me as the object of his affection, not the subject, the object of Father God's redeeming, saving love. The reason we talk about this and the reason it's so important is the tendency of the human mind is to make so much of himself that he thinks his salvation is somehow up to him. And maybe 30 years ago, you came to Christ, you were baptized, you professed faith in Christ and you were genuinely redeemed, but you still kind of live under the weight of thinking, I got to keep myself saved. And yet what we see in scripture is that God does it from predestination all the way to glorification. It is a work of God. We see that in scripture. So a lot of questions are coming up in your minds right now, and there are probably even some people thinking, but, 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 wait. And here's one of the most popular questions. What about my free will? I mean, doesn't God give everybody a free will to choose? Well, this is what the Bible teaches about will. We, we saw the will here. You understand the, the, the last two words of, of this whole scenario here. It's all about the will of God. You understand that in order to have an absolute free will, there must be no limitations, no constraints, right? That's what that means, to have a free will, to choose and do whatever you please to do. The only human being in history, the only two human beings in history who ever ultimately had self-determining free will, Adam and Eve. The moment that they sinned, they were enslaved. Their will was enslaved and limited and you and I have been living under that curse ever since. So do we have a free will? If I hand you a menu at Chili's or something this afternoon and, and, and say, you know, you have a free will to choose anything on this menu, then yeah, you have a free will to choose any of that. Sure. I mean, I don't think God's up there in heaven predetermining, are you going to have chips and salsa or are you going to have a quesadilla? You know, I think God gives you that kind of free will. But when we talk about free will, what, what we mean is this. Because our will is so enslaved to sin and so corrupted and we are so totally depraved, we have lost the ability to choose what we should choose. The free will that we exercise now is this. We are free to choose any enslavement to sin that we enslave ourselves to. How you go to hell is completely up to you. Whatever sin you, you choose, you, but we are enslaved to sin. That's how corrupted we are. We are free to be enslaved and corrupted by any sin that our appetites lead us into. But we have lost the ability to choose holiness and choose wisely until God comes and fixes that component in us and imparts holiness to us and gives us faith and gives us the will to follow his will. We're enslaved. Our will is broken. It's corrupt. So yeah, we're free to choose any particular sin that we want to be enslaved to. That's the extent of the freeness of our will. You see, left to ourselves, we will always reject Christ. 
left to ourselves, we will be bent toward ourselves, we will worship ourselves, we'll never make the right choice, we'll never bow to the Lordship of Christ. That's how corrupted we are. We are, we, we are free in the sense that we can choose any particular sin we want to enslave us. But our free will is actually a slave to its own self-determining choices to remain free from God. And so we're slaves to our own desires to be free and independent from God. That's how hard my heart and how corrupted I really am until or unless God does something about it. And the amazing thing is why would God in his love want to have anything to do with a will like mine that has freely chosen to reject anything that gives me a heart to surrender to him. So God has to do it. God has to come and elect. God has to come and set in motion the things that are necessary. God has to break into the prison of my free will. Free will with quotation. The prison of my free will. He has to break into that prison and set me free from this will that is rebellious and corrupt and blind. And then he's got to give me the ability to surrender to him. He does that for those who are his elect. You may say that doesn't sound fair, but why doesn't God do that for everybody? And that's a question that's never really answered in scripture. That question's answered by another question. God, that seems unfair. Are you unfair? And God answers your question with another question in Romans chapter nine. He says, who are you to answer back to God about the way that God conducts his business? And why are you measuring God based on human understandings of fairness? At that point, we just have to kind of tap out and say, done, done, my wisdom. God, your wisdom trumps my wisdom, and I got to back out of this thing. But what should the doctrine of election do for us? It should do at least three things. Number one, it ought to incredibly humble you. To think that somehow... I am completely a prisoner to my own sin and I'm enslaved until God comes and sets me free. Number two, it ought to cause you to erupt in praise. That's exactly what this verse does. This verse is not just a bunch of informational head knowledge about how God chooses and elects. It is saturated with praise to God that he would want to have anything to do with people as corrupt and bent as you and I. And number three, the doctrine of election ought to give you incredible confidence and motivation in evangelism. You say, well, now, wait a minute. If God elects people before they're ever created, and he knows beforehand which of the dominoes are going to fall, then why in the world would I ever have to go and tell somebody the gospel? If God chooses them, then they'll be chosen and there's nothing they can do about it and there's nothing I can do about that. Do you know that that is completely foreign thinking to scripture? It actually works the other way. Here's the way it works. I don't know about you, but when I sit down with somebody that doesn't know the Lord or I meet somebody that, that, that has no understanding of scripture or maybe no understanding of the God that created them, maybe even somebody that has a different faith system, and I begin to share the scriptural truths or I begin to share my testimony, if I think that somehow their conversion is up to my ability to articulate the gospel and my strong-handed sales techniques 
of trying to get them to make a decision to choose Christ and to follow Christ, if I think that's up to me, I, I'm never going to sleep at night. That the salvation of the world is dependent upon my ability to articulate the gospel. Do you know what the doctrine of election does? It does this. It means that I've got to get the gospel out to everyone that I possibly can with the confidence of knowing that some of them are a part of the elect and will believe in response to what they've heard. That gives me incredible, God, incredible confidence to share the gospel, knowing that some will hear it and believe it. And it's not up to my ability to articulate it that motivates them to believe it. It is up to God's spirit. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is the Apostle Paul that wrote half the New Testament. And notice what he says. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of who? The elect. You say, but Paul, if they're elect, why would you have to endure anything? Paul saw it as a, as a partnership that God uses faithful evangelists to call the elect. This is the way I like to say it. The same God that chose who chose how. And the how is through evangelists like you, not guys with like blazers and stuff, but you're an evangelist, okay? And that means that you're equipped with the gospel and you go share it with your friends and in the hope that they will repent and believe when they hear it. And when the elect hear it and believe it, they are saved because we have to endure some hardship. It says that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So there's election. That's the first step. That gets the dominoes falling. And the next step is what we'll call common grace. Now, common grace is something that everybody experiences. Not everybody experiences election. Everybody experiences common grace. Uh, Every Muslim experiences the common grace of God. Every, every, uh, every atheist experiences the common grace of God. What is the common grace of God? The common grace of God is this. An undeserved patience and kindness of God toward all people prior to salvation. You know what that means? Do you, do you remember in the first couple of pages of the Bible when, when God gave Adam and Eve the boundaries and said, don't touch the tree, don't eat of the tree? And what'd they do? of that tree. That was the tree they wanted to eat from, right? And so the Bible says that, in, that when God warned them not to eat of that fruit, he told them, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Did they die in the day that they ate it? No, they didn't. Do you know what God did? God exercised patience and kindness and gave them a common grace. You know what a common grace is? The fact that they were able to take another breath after they sinned. That was the common grace of God. So even though God has given us freedom to choose or reject Him, His grace demonstrated through Jesus breaks into the prison of our free will. If you've received Christ as Savior, then God has chosen you to belong to Him. And what should our election do? As Pastor Trent has taught us today, it should humble us, stir in us praise to God, and give us an incredible confidence to share Christ with others. If you've been encouraged by our program, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at resonate at harvestgranger.org. 
And to hear more of Pastor Trent's teaching, join us at Harvest Bible Chapel Granger, Saturdays at 5 p.m. or Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. We're located just north of Cleveland Road on Hickory Road in Granger, Indiana. It's our prayer that God's Word will resonate in your heart and in your life this week. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. For more information, visit us online at harvestgranger.org.